0: This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller.
1: We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation.
0: Hey friends, welcome to the podcast. Today's interview is with Dr. Oz Guinness, who's a leading public intellectual who's impacted my life considerably, and I was honored to have him on. I think you're going to see in this interview, even that I was a little nervous at certain times, but we're really excited that the topic of our interview is his new book, The Magna Carta. Magna Carta of Humanity. We're a little thankful, too, that University Press has given us five free copies of his book to give out in conjunction with this episode. So you have a chance. You could get a free copy of Oz's book. And this is a, a thick book. You, I, I'm sorry I don't have it with me, but I'll send it to you um, if you're somebody who wins. So here's three, there's three ways you can win. One, you can join my email list, and you can just go to andymiller3rd.com. That's Andy Miller I-I-I. Dot com. And you can just go to sign up for the email list there. And so if you sign up um, after this podcast co- has come out, you'll be entered to win. Secondly, we could use somebody to share on Facebook or some other social media on Twitter, Instagram, this episode. So if you share this with a little comment about it and let me know that that's happened, then I'll make sure to enter you into the contest as well. Third, so we have the email list social media share a social media share and in the third way that we could you could win what is that third way oh YouTube YouTube yeah if you get on YouTube what we can do is if you can leave a comment on YouTube on this video that's a way that you can enter win just make sure we have a way to get in touch with you as you enter into the contest so we have five books that we're offering to you of Oz Guinness, by Oz Guinness the Magna Carta of Humanity. I'm also excited today to let you know we have a new sponsor. Bill Roberts is a friend of mine and he's a financial advisor who's been in the business for over 25 years. He helps people with retirement, investment planning. He helps nonprofit organizations, but he really specializes particularly in helping minist- people in ministry. And as somebody who grew up in a pastor's home, is a generational salvationist. He's a somebody who believes in the ministry of this podcast. Um, he's somebody who just knows how to come alongside the unique financial arrangements that come with people in ministry, particularly people in the Salvation Army. So I really encourage you to look into, into Bill's work. I'm going to just give you his website here. It's williamhroberts.com. We'll have a link to this and information about him in the show notes. So if you go down on YouTube, when I say show notes, there's like something that normally comes alongside with the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the YouTube channel. You can find a link to information that we have about our guest, uh, their websites and that type of thing. So williamhroberts.com. And also, we're also sponsored by WPO Development, who I've talked about many times here. The, um Keith Waters is their CEO, and he has people who work with him all over the country. They come alongside people, help guiding them in capital campaigns, feasibility studies, mission planning studies, and what he's able to do is help people figure out where they need to go. A lot of times we get so caught up in the day-to-day functioning that we don't plan for the future. And so Keith and his team do an amazing job. I mean, and I I can testify to this because I know what he's done for the work that God's led me to do in the past, and I still refer people to him on a regular basis, and I'm glad to refer you to him. If you have any needs like that, if your church does, or if you're serving in a Salvation Army context, uh, WPO Development is a great source of information. They've done over 250 campaigns across the country. So you just email Keith at WPODevelopment.com, and you can find, again, a link to that on our show notes. Thank you for being interested in this podcast. Like We think we can expand the reach if we can just have opportunities for people to share links to this, if you can go on and like this, if you can leave a review. That really helps us. And it's I know we just had a, our most popular episode last week, which dealt with a sensitive topic. I know some of you are asking for more from me on that, uh, more in-depth teaching, more types of debates and these type of things. And so I'm working through that feedback. Thanks to all of you who have given feedback and have encouraged me. Those of you who have challenged me, I appreciate that as well. Um, Thanks so much for taking time to check out this podcast and enjoy this interview with Oz Guinness. God bless you. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. I am so glad today and honored truly to have on the podcast with me, Dr. Oz Guinness. Oz, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Andy. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Now, before we get started to talk about your book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, which I'm very excited to get into, I want to describe a scene that happened for me just two months ago. I was, um, Abby and I were finishing up our time serving the Salvation Army in Tampa, Florida, and a board member had invited us to the, the prayer breakfast, the National Day of Prayer. And so we were, we were kind of in the throes of moving. There were moving boxes everywhere. Uh, we knew this was an event we wanted to be, where we wanted to be, to meet people, to pray, to be a part of our city. And we came in just a minute or two late, and as we came in, we sat down, and we we couldn't even sit by each other at this table. Well, here's what we we picked up the program, and we looked at the very bottom, and the keynote speaker was Oz Guinness. We had no idea, and we looked at each other and showed each other the program, and we were just delighted because you have had a great influence on us. Um, through your writing, I think many people were probably touched by the call, but also your various pieces on American liberty and other, other pieces through through the years that have uh, Fool's Talk, uh, great pieces that have helped us. So I was delighted to see you that day, but also even now. So, one thing that happened is I, I, was a, I got in a line to have my picture with you and have a brief word at conversation after that event. And we got talking. And we started going on you and I for a little bit, and then I had somebody poke me in the back saying, "Come on, move on, guy." Some other, some others wanted to get to see him. So, th- at that point, you agreed to come on my podcast. So, thanks so much for being here. We yeah, really we're really welcome. glad to have you.
1: Thank you. It's a, you're very kind to say all that and very encouraging.
0: Well, I, I would love to at some point hear more of your story too. I know that there uh, you you've been a part of in evangelical thinkers like people like uh, Francis Schaeffer and been been in like kind of the room with really key people through the years. But I don't want to miss a chance. Well, actually, let me just stop there. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with Frank uh, Francis Schaeffer?
1: Well, go back to that, and actually, more importantly too, you know, I'm descended from the youngest son of Arthur Guinness the Brewer okay. who came to faith in Jesus through the preaching of John Wesley in the Great Revival in the 1730s. So my branch of the family has kept the faith ever since. And my great-grandfather, I think I may have mentioned to you, was a close friend of William and Catherine Booth Wow. and lived in the East End of London and worked among the down and out as the booths did so that's my family and way way background now after i left london university
0: yeah
1: i had become a christian but i was frankly frustrated okay because okay. we had rich deep teaching but it was not related to what was going on in the world mm-hmm. and in culture yeah. and this was the 1960s right and then i was introduced to francis schaeffer you know goatee funny little swiss knickerbockers. <laughs> A crazy pronunciation of ordinary English words. <laughs> but he was able to connect all the dots. Wow. And it was a tremendous liberation to my faith to realize you can think about anything and everything under the Lordship of Jesus. So I owe the world to Francis Schaeffer.
0: Well, I want to go back to John Wesley and Catherine Booth in a second, but so did you but with Francis Schaeffer, did you actually go to Labrie and spend time there? I went to Labrie. And I lived
1: there for five years and actually for three of them lived with Francis and Edith Schaefer in their home. Wow. Is that before you did
0: doctoral work?
1: Yes. Okay. I went to Libri after my undergraduate degree. Okay. And I actually went on to do my doctorate at Oxford 10 years later because I realized then as someone growingly interested in apologetics that I, I needed it. Hmm.
0: So is that, did did that even help direct you that time of like what you would study in the course of your career, kind of setting it up like this broad worldview perspective of like seeing Christianity as a base of, basis for all, like all the world's existence? Well, yes and no. I mean, Schaeffer
1: inspired me, teaching me apologetics. But his approach, you might say, was almost entirely what's called the history of ideas. Right. Philosophers, their thinking and the impact on the rest of us. But I went to Oxford and I studied Peter Berger. Okay. And he's very different. It's not a a disagreement, but an addition, a compliment. Okay. Berger looks at culture and the way things that are not ideas at all shape our thinking, although they don't come from philosophers. So you take something like time, which is so incredibly important in the modern world, Right. you take fast life, 24-7 pressure, the, the, the rage for relevance and all that. Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. come from any thinker at all. It comes from clocks and watches. Yeah. And you need to understand culture as well as ideas to really see what shapes us.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's part of what you've, what I've appreciated from your writing is your ability to get into even this exact cultural moment, which we'll get to in just a minute. But back, so your now your name is unique. Both your first and last name to the, my American ears are unique. So it's not Oz, O-Z, it's O-S, but then also Guinness. You mentioned your great, great grandfather being connected to John Wesley and another one connected to William Booth, William and Catherine Booth, but it's also a famous name for other reasons, too, that maybe uh, in the Salvation Army, not that, not something we would always identify with. But w- w- tell us about your famous na- last name.
1: Well, actually, I'm very proud of that, too. Arthur Guinness founded the Guinness Brewery. Right. And from the beginning, as a follower of Jesus, he founded, for example, Ireland's first Sunday school. Wow. But he made sure that the pay was always above average. Hmm that there was health and education and retirement plans, all sorts of things for the workers. And there always have been since then that you didn't have in the 18th century. So he put his faith into practice. And you know, John Wesley's great line, earn all you can, save all you can, give all you can. So that was behind our family's generosity. And for a long time they gave anonymously, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, our Lord said. And we've been Ireland's most generous philanthropists. Wow. So that all came out of their faith. Wow. I and like, as you I know, love. in the 18th century, yes. you had dirty water on one side, and on the other side, the gin craze, which was the equivalent of drugs today. Mm. So let's be clear. Christians drank beer. Right. It, it was a statement of moderation. So it wasn't the evil that it became in the days of, say, prohibition.
0: Right. Forgive me if I came across critical there. I don't know. No. Uh, no. The Salvation Army, in the Salvation Army tradition, we are teetotalers, but I'm so thankful that, you know, for what your family did. And also, I'd love to hear did you know much about the relationship of your, I think it's your great great grandfather with William and Catherine Booth?
1: Uh, yes, I've known through family stories how okay. close they yeah. were. They were very close to William and Catherine Booth, also to the Earl of Shaftesbury, who was the great reformer. If you ever go to London, you see what people think is the statue of Eros in Piccadilly Circus. Yeah. It's not actually Eros. It's technically, if you know Greek, Ant-Eros, who was the god not of whimsical love like Eros, but of charity. Hmm. And Uh, that statue is actually in honor of uh, Lord Shotsbury, who was a close friend of the booths and my great-grandfather.
0: Interesting. And people might not know this. Like uh, sometimes in the Salvation Army's tradition, you know, now I'm a sixth generation Salvationist. And actually Mm -hmm. my grandfather's great-grandfather came to faith in the London area. And it was through the booths that my family was sent to the United States um, and kind of passed down through various generations. But there's a, a kind of, it becomes like almost a heroic memory uh, that we don't realize that there was a whole board of philanthropists who came alongside of William and Catherine Booth in those early days, helping to fund the work that they were doing and also providing administrative oversight, even though William Booth was not always very open to hearing of that, because He went from being the general superintendent to being the general, right? And he wanted to be ultimately in charge. But uh, nevertheless, like, it wouldn't have happened without significant early supporters who appreciated what he was doing for the East End.
1: Well, you know, I'm not a great fan of the Victorians myself, their architecture, their clothing, and so on. But their faith and their entrepreneurialism puts us to shame. Mm. You know, so my great-great-grandfather was a friend of Hudson Taylor's. And he heard Hudson Taylor when he first came back from China. Wow. And he volunteered, he and his wife, to go to China with Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor said, no, you're too old. Mm. He was 30. He was 30. But Hudson Taylor said, you stay and send out missionaries to us. Wow. So, Grattan Guinness founded the world's first missionary training college. He founded three missionary societies. Wow. And he sent out fifteen hundred missionaries to wow. Africa, China, Latin America, and so on. And if you look at the entrepreneurialism of their faith, it is utterly incredible. We're a spoiled, shallow generation <laughs> by comparison.
0: Yeah, th- there were some very u- unique things about that that era, and also the way that the I just was able com- came in contact with Timothy Larson's book on the Bible. In the 19th century and it's amazing to me how drenched that culture was even the atheists of the time you know spoke in terms using scripture it was just a part of their culture and it's interesting this, this role of the don't not the donor but the supporter the entrepreneur early on like you don't have like it's it, think about what your grand. I'm sorry I keep on getting confused great great grandfather is that it
1: well the one with William Booth was my great Grandfather, okay. Arthur Guinness, founder of the brewery, was my great, 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 three greats. Oh my
0: goodness! Okay, forgive me if I get that confused. But th- right. all these people, th- um, the one who worked with Hudson Taylor, for them to be able to use their gift in business, meeting human needs, and through the marketplace, they did so much good. And I think as I've worked with donors through the years, I'm often reminded. While they they might not be they be the ones going overseas or working in the shelters that the Salvation Army has created, we wouldn't be able to do what we're able to do without their support. Um, Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. Well, let me get into this. I really want to hear about the Magna Carta book, and this is what caught my ear. I don't think the book was out when I heard you talk about it, but it, it hinges on a contrast, I think, at least that you make, between two revolutions. Uh, at least two revolutions. There's more revolutions that you mentioned. But describe to me kind of the, the basic idea of this book.
1: Almost everybody agrees America is deeply divided. Here in DC, it's called the Great Polarization. But why? Is it just the social media or the effect of former President Trump or the Coastals, California, New York, clashing with the Midwesterners? Hmm. Or is it the nationalists over against the globalists, George Soros style, and so on? And I would say those are all factors, but they don't go the the depth of it. The real difference is between those who understand America and freedom from the perspective of the American Revolution, Hmm. which was largely biblical through the impact of the Reformation, And those who understand American freedom from the perspective of ideas that come down from the French Revolution. Right. So you need to understand the difference between 1776 and the years of 1789 to really understand American politics today. That's the basic argument of the book. Now, the trouble is when it comes to things like, say, justice, it's clear that many Christians don't understand either the biblical grounds for justice and revolution or the american revolution and its distinctiveness and so unwittingly many of them have drunk the kool-aid yeah
0: now you're probably i know you're aware of um there's a lot of people who like to make a put a positive spin a very positive spin on the french revolution uh and uh like for instance um even even claiming a connection to biblical roots in it like uh, tom holland and um this um idea like that. It's based upon equality, a biblical concept. And, and, and people do a similar thing with the Frankfurt. You've mentioned justice, like the Frankfurt School. like say, oh, well, these are these people just trying to respond to Hitler and um, trying to figure out what was going on there. I'm not, I'm not advocating that position too. But how do you respond to those folks who see, well, let's, let's give it a little bit more credit. Let's give the French Revolution a little more credit. Because those are the ideas. If we look at those revolutions, those are the ideas that seem to be gaining popularity and momentum today.
1: Well, the French Revolution is an extreme, and you can understand it if you take the cry of Diderot, which is picked up by the Jacobin, we will never be free until we strangle the last king with the guts of the last priest. (laughs) In other words, church and state were in collusion, both oppressive, and the revolution threw off both. Mm. Now, it is true that notions like equality come from the scripture, Nowhere else. I mean, it's simply a fact. Humans are not equal in size, intelligence, in speed. Take the Olympics and so on. Yeah. We're not equal. The idea of equality comes from the Bible. We're all made in the image of God. Right. But the revolution was Mm. anti-biblical, anti-Christian, anti-religious. And no one can read a book like, say, Simon Sharma on the revolution. It was awful. Mm. And it was fueled by violence and coercion, with a reign of terror that is absolutely, until the Holocaust, the
0: greatest example of evil in human history. Mm-hmm. And you helped me in your in a previous book, "Free Pe- People Suicide." I might have the name wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, right. That that, and I think, and you do the same thing in this book about connect and it comes with the title too. connecting it to like what you call the, the Carta of humanity Sinai. And I reached out to you and I was really delighted by the way. Thank you so much. You responded to an email. I just went to your website, contact us. I I didn't think I'd actually talk to you. I, I thought I'd talk to some person and maybe five, you know, five people later, I'd finally hear from you. But like within a day you responded. I was trying to find the roots that you had alluded to, to, um, the kind of reformation, rediscovering the roots of covenant. And you responded to me and you put me on to Daniel Lazar. And, um, and that was really helpful. I mean, it was a very intense book, but it helped me get the, get this idea. But could you talk to me a little bit about what it is then about like the American revolution via the reformation via Sinai that's better or something that is needed for well- the time?
1: Think of political science 101 for a few seconds. Okay. You know, people immediately think of the Greeks. Monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, and corrupt forms. Elazar changed the discussion. Those are governments, but how about the way societies are founded? Mm. Well, there are three. You have organic societies, a tribe or a clan or a country like Lebanon. They're all related by kith and kin, blood ties. Fewer of those in the modern world. Most societies are what's called hierarchical kingdoms, empires, linked by power and command and structures. And then the third type is covenantal, linked by a common binding agreement of the people. Now, when the church was declared officially the religion of the Roman Empire in 380 under the Emperor Theodosius, For better or worse, the church copied Roman structures, which were not biblical, covenantal, hierarchical. In other words, you had the Caesar and the consuls and the senators. And so you had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops hierarchical. Yeah. And it was a Catholic layman, Lord Acton, who made the famous remark, we all know, all power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right. Hierarchical power, remember that was France before the revolution. <laughs> right, right, right. Hierarchical right, right. power gets incredibly corrupt. Mm-hmm. So the Reformation said, no, that wasn't biblical. Sola Scriptura, back to the scriptures. What is the scriptural form? Covenant. That is the unique innovation in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Mm-hmm. Now we can expel out why, but The Jews, and then later, through the Reformation, Knox tried it in Scotland, failed. Cromwell tried it in England, failed. It's called the lost cause in England. Right. But what was the lost cause in England became the winning cause in New England. Awesome. The Mayflower Compact is a covenant. Mm, The American constitution, we the people, is a national form of covenant. Wow. And we need to understand what it was trying to do.
0: And, and you help me see I, I'm sorry I hadn't gotten to this uh, myself, even the basis of the word federal or federalism. could you t- talk about that? I'm so, I, I felt so ignorant when, when I when you said that like well now I'm teaching at a seminary you know, Americans, I should have known talk about,
1: Americans talk about federal or say the fez, which is Washington stepping in. Yeah, that's totally the wrong idea. The word federal comes from the Latin. Fedus, F O E D U S, which means covenant. Mm. In other words, originally it was a covenant between the center and the states, the national government in Washington, D.C., and all the different states which had their independence. But of course, that's broken down now and everything's centralized and not local independence.
0: I'm going to, I want to get, I will get to a place where, and I love how your book subtitle talks about like taking this for today. Uh, We'll, we'll get there. Um, But I can't help but hit on this hierarchy issue. And you talk about that. That that was what brought me to your work, uh, free people suicide, Eleazar, because I was dealing with the. It was at the time of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I was tasked with writing a paper on ecclesiology for the Salvation Army. Like, hey, okay, let's let's think about the impact of the of the um, Reformation on our time. And so that Lazar piece helped me because then I was able to bring covenant forward, and covenant's a big idea in the army, but also a big idea is the command. Autocratic system, and I already alluded that humorously about William Booth. It's a challenge, I think, in, in the concept of the church to have that hierarchy. Now, I I don't think the Salvation Army has become the corrupt. We have like accountability to God and to the people we serve, um, but that idea of hierarchy making its way into the church, as you alluded to, like when you were talking about the um, Rome Romans adopting this other system and that it got coming to be a part of the Roman Catholic church. I couldn't help, but see parallels to my own movement. And what do you think about the, the forms of government as it relates to the church? Like, yeah.
1: Well, there's nothing totally wrong with hierarchy it depends right. where it's appropriate. So if you have an orchestra, you don't have a democracy. Right. The conductor is the boss. And if you're in the army, you know, the general, the admiral, they are the boss. And you'd have to run the military in that terms. But the question is what? Now, family is organic. It's linked by blood and kinship. It's not covenantal either. You don't have to sign on to a covenant before you come into a family. You're born into it as children of your parents and so on. So we've got to see what type of system is appropriate when and where there's nothing wrong with hierarchy per se. Right. But you notice in Israel, you do have a king, but the king is never religious. Hmm. He's not God. Mm-hmm. The priest is the one who links you to God and the prophet, the one who links you to God and speaks on behalf of the covenant and the prophet. There's the separation of powers is allowed to hold the king accountable. Right. Now, you couldn't do that in the army in the secular terms, but Christian terms, you should. I don't know how you run, but someone in the name of the Lord on the basis of Scripture should be able to challenge someone higher than them in the hierarchy and so on.
0: Right. And I think that that's my challenge to um, a system like the Salvation Army is to find ways to to have a uh, systems of accountability and democracy within it. Like it's it, nothing's gonna be a full democracy. Like we want leaders. 100%. We want to have people who are, I think like that's something that God has put within us and within creation itself, the same time it needs to be, it needs to have some moderation. And I, I'm, I'm actually really interested in looking for your name. I'm in the middle of researching William Booth right now, myself. I'm just looking at a lot of stuff from the 1860s, seventies and eighties, a lot of literature from that period. Um, And I I do think, like he had such a kind of creative idea that it led him to think, and had such immediate, wonderful success. It led him to think that my way must always be the right way, and um, that's what led, in part, there's theological reasons, practical reasons, to the Salvation Army no longer practicing the traditional Protestant sacraments. Um, Was that autocratic approach? Like William Booth said, "Okay, we're not going to do it. Maybe we'll think about it later." And we still are 155 years later, and we uh, we're still in this place now. I'd love to get um, where do you see like in our society, in our culture at this time? How are some of these ideas being expressed, um, likely through cancel culture, uh, forms of critical theory, critical race theory, etc.? These are these are ways that maybe this is making an entrance and becoming popular in our time.
1: Well, people have to see that this is only the third of the great volcanic flows that have come out from Marxism. Revolutionary nationalism in the 19th century, revolutionary socialism, or communism in the 20th century, and now there's neo-Marxism or cultural Marxism. But you know, in the last month, everyone's got fascinated with CRT, critical race theory, and it goes back for many people only to Derek Bell in the right. 1970s. But we're talking about something much earlier, the 1920s, Gramsci 1930s, the Frankfurt School, the 1960s, what they call for the long march through the institutions. Mm. They wouldn't win in the streets. You had to win the colleges, universities, the press, the media, Hollywood and entertainment. Fifty years later, they've done it. But it's much wider than just race. So it's not only Black Lives Matter. It was a while back, Occupy Wall Street. Sure. It's not only race relations. It's women's studies and queer studies and fat studies. You go on down the line. It's a whole package. And if you read, say, the authors of the sexual revolution, uh, for example, Wilhelm Reich in the 1920s, he's absolutely crystal clear. They will never win until they overcome two people. Parents. That's why you want sex education at three and four. Rule out parents. And secondly, the church. Wow. In other words, they are out to overthrow 3,000 years of civilization. And we should be clear. And pastors who've drunk the Kool-Aid are incredibly foolish and faithless. Wow. Because, Uh, you know, injustice is the place where, yes, almost everybody agrees things are unjust. Say the killing of George Floyd. Absolutely, yeah. The question is how you address it. Sure. And the way the radical left does and the way the gospel does
0: are entirely different. So I mean, this, this is heavy. And, and I, I imagine some people are already bristling against this because uh, some would say, well, you know, Oz, Andy, here's the thing. Like critical theory and just broadly, it's just a way to view society it's a way to understand society and it just gives us a lens how, how do you respond to that
1: understanding injustice and abuse is incredibly important the greatest voices in the classical world raised against abuse are the hebrew prophets we are wow. their heirs. so mm. yes we are, we are, we understand abuse and we stand against it my ancestors were friends of william wilberforce Evangelicals were pro-abolition and the greatest reformers. But let's be absolutely clear and don't let our friends be naive for a moment. This is not just a way to understand society. Right. This is a way to overthrow the status quo as it is, including the church. And pastors and Christians who don't understand that are tremendously naive. And as I said, they are faithless. Than not being faithful to
0: our Lord today, with
1: vigilance.
0: I have three children: four, 14, 12, and ten. And what is it like? I, I want to guard them, give them seeds of the gospel's truth, like of faith that can help them stand against this. And it's just an incredibly different time. You know, I I was born showing my age here, uh, born in 1980, um, and like really it was so clear, okay, communism is bad, democracy and, uh, you know, Ronald Reagan and the like, we were just, that was obviously the winning team. And I, I didn't really have to think about this. I, I, I was given an excuse, a way out. And I started to see this come into play. And even early in my ministry, uh, as a Salvation army officer, I found myself by just based upon what I was reading, utilizing terms that are connected to Marxist language like redistribution of the wealth uh, and an idea of justice that would assume that certain people or like or, or like people like we talked about earlier donors were had what they had because they took it from somebody else as if it's a zero sum economy or something like that so but then I like I really saw as I got closer this this doesn't work like my what challenged me is what is the goal like where is this headed and I, I'm curious, like what advice do you have for me? Like I'm this like kind of like in between a Gen X and a millennial, like trying to raise kids in this time. Like what do we do? Like how can we help our families and institutions be ready for this time?
1: Always try and keep them ahead of the game. That's the challenge. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, the left has a little saying, the issue is not the issue. In No, words, you can take any issue, use it and on it, you're basically hanging revolution. The issue, finally, is a revolution, a, a cultural Marxist revolution. So we need to examine how they work. They look at what's called discourse, speech, how we talk. Sure. And they're looking for who's the majority, who's the minority, and above all, who's the oppressor and who's the victim. Mm. Then when you discover the victim, and always a group, not an individual, they're interested in groups, you weaponize the victim in order to attack the status quo. But what you set up, remember they say, God is dead. Not only that, truth is dead. Right. So all that's left is power. Mm -hmm. So you're setting up a conflict of power, and the only outcome is what the Romans called the peace of despotism. Mm -hmm. In other words, when you have a power giving you peace that can put down all other powers in an unrivaled way. That is authoritarianism. That's Chinese totalitarianism. So people have got to wake up, see how it operates. Wow. Whereas wow. the gospel, we have a high view of injustice because we have a higher view of humans Amen. made in the image of God. Yes. So you address truth to power. You call for repentance. You call for confession. You call for forgiveness for reconciliation and restoration, and you truly are putting wrongs right and turning enemies into friends. Now, look at the two ways of approaching it. Both agree on injustice, but how they address it is so different. One is disastrous, and let's be clear to your friends, Andy, this left-wing revolution has never worked anywhere, Mm. and it has always ended in oppression. Always. Wow.
0: I want to. The uh, other is the oh, oh, gospel. Amen. And, and we we see the effects of that. Um, even even what the what the New Testament writers are only able to address in part. I think of East Stanley Jones's quote about. Um, he he said when he's writing writing a little bit about Philemon that it is a stick of dynamite that was waiting to explode. Uh, by William Wilberforce and, and the like, many years later. I mean, the gospel has the power to overcome those injustices. I wanted to, you also have a an understanding of revolutions from your own personal history, too, and as, as your parents were missionaries. Could you talk about that? Well, I grew up in China, so I begin the book, as you know,
1: by remembering a day in January 1949 when my dad said to me, son, we're in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has just abandoned the city we were in the southern capital of Nanking and we're at the mercy of the Red Army and within four months the Red Army had come in the reign of terror began trials in the morning executions in the afternoon and the reign of terror was very real and that was the beginning of Mao Zedong probably killing 75 million of his own fellow Chinese So that authoritarianism has been awful. So I was there two years under the Chinese Revolution. My parents a further two years. And then, of course, later when I was a student in London and so on, I often traveled to Eastern Europe. I traveled to Russia, the Soviet Union, and to countries like Poland and the Czech Republic, which were under the heel of the Soviets. And no one who's had an experience of... The radical socialism or communism can be anything but naive and mm. so many americans are naive because they're historically as well as travel wise ignorant
0: wow i mean y- y- you lived in that i mean i think like as you're saying this you know people could say oh this is just a talking point like okay people know that uh, marx have never worked no you saw it you saw Death around you <laughs> like this is not going to work for our society, for the church to just randomly ad- adopt these ideas that uh, already have demonstrated consequences. It-
1: or, or Andy we look at we should look at things today. you know Reinhold Niebuhr used to say that the bookends, political bookends of history, are authoritarianism, order, no freedom, and at the other extreme anarchy, freedom without order. And when people feel we're moving towards anarchy and chaos, they would rather live under tyranny, even with control. So in our world, China is clearly the one extreme. Yeah. And you can see that you have both of those in Genesis 1 to 11. The Tower of Babel is the authoritarianism. The conditions before the flood are anarchy. And so the way of the Lord, the new way, Abraham, then Moses in the Exodus, is an ordered freedom. And we as Christians should know what we're challenged to, the way we're challenged to live, the order and the freedom we're we're challenged to demonstrate, so we can really be an alternative to the craziness of the world around
0: us. Right. And that's in part like what the goal of your book is. It's not just pointing out the problems. And, and there's been good analysis done of people talking about some of the cultural Marxism that we see or uh, critical theory the like. I mean, social media is doing a good job putting people on various sides of that. But we're not ju- you're not just analyzing this problem. I mean, you think that going back to Sinai, the concept of covenant, the concept of uh, distributed powers um, is also the way to the future. So the the subtitle of your book is Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Do you think we can get back to this? Is it possible or are we too far gone?
1: It needs vision and it needs leadership. If you look at the evangelical community, it's lost confidence even its very identity. So the word evangelical is now no longer used. And you can see that many Christians don't have any idea how to engage with public culture. Many have a faith that's too private. Others have a faith that's too politicized in a secular sense of the word political, and then simply not confident that biblical ideas are relevant. Mm. Now, the fact is that notions like freedom, justice, human dignity, truth, words, and all sorts of things like this, The Bible has the deepest, richest answers ever given. Amen. So I would argue these are good news. These are the best news ever. And we should be arguing for them in public life today. Amen. So Christians need to get off the back foot, the defensiveness, (laughs) and move out with confidence. Of course, we'll be reviled and insulted. That's the name of the game in the day of the social media.
0: But if these things are true and wonderful, we got to speak them out. Amen. Think about and a great place you can do that as Wesley Biblical Seminary, right? <laughs> like this is the, what we're and that's in part even a sense of my own calling to leave the local church through the Ministry of the Salvation Army and go to the academy is that I want to be a part of c- helping serve pastors and ministry leaders and scholars to help them really be that voice in our community so they can stand up strongly in that. What do you think about the uh, institution like, a, like a, a Wesley biblical seminary or seminaries at this point? How did they enter into this discussion? What are some things that we can do? Um, yeah.
1: Well, seminaries are incredibly important because one of the biggest challenges for the church at large is transmission. How do you pass it on? Right. And both with freedom in the political world and also with faith in the church transmission, the handing on has broken down. So seminaries are very important, but they're, you know, whether they're in person or online or whether you have classical things like Hebrew and Greek or you're all in terms of successful preaching, The seminaries I know are under incredible pressure, and many of them are highly confused. So it's a a very difficult time to be a seminary, but I would argue they're all the more important today.
0: Right. And and this is what we found. You'll you'll find this interesting. We have, uh, because we're we're an evangelical seminary in the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So like, and I love it. Now, I don't know how we didn't get you, Oz. I don't know if you're a Methodist, but... uh, with William Booth, John Wesley, and your family's history, we should have made this happen. But um, anyhow, this this idea I'm of like. An
1: evangelical
0: Anglican. Oh, well, that's even. That's, that's pretty good. I think if I was in Washington, D.C., I think that's where I would be too. Uh, so, the, anyways, in, in our tradition, we are. Upholding the authority of Scripture, like that's a, a, a pillar of who Wesley Biblical Seminary has always been. Also, the the doctrine of sanctification of holiness that people can experience victory in this life over sin, um, like that's a key tenet too to uh, what holds us as an institution. Well, that has in part separated us in the past, but what's happened now? We have more students coming in this fall than we have ever had at any given moment. We are bursting at the seams. We have. Looks like 350 students for this fall semester, which you know might not be as big as like a major university or something. But we're talking like our we never broke 200 in the past. So what I find interesting is like God's bringing students our way, and in other institutions like Asbury Theological Seminary are growing at this time. While these others that are confused, like you're saying, they're adopting these other ideas that come like away from the biblical revelation, are not are not thriving. I'm hopeful, like what you're saying, if we highlight the true, the noble, the good, the beautiful, like that's gonna win the day.
1: Uh, Well, keep your eyes open though, Andy, because you know there was a book many years ago, Why Conservative Churches Grow. And that was true, liberal churches decline. the Episcopal Church disappearing. It's so treacherous in its theology. But you can see the last 10 years how the radical left is trying to infiltrate everywhere. I'll put another way. The three great oppositions we face are theological revisionism, okay. the sexual revolution, and the cultural revolution politically. Now, for 200 years, we've done very well as evangelicals resisting theological revisionism, theological liberalism. Very few have capitulated. But when it comes to the sexual revolution... Right we're capitulating when it comes to the neo-Marxist cultural revolution, we're capitulating. Mm. So you've got to be incredibly vigilant and not just defensive. Amen. In other words, we've got to show a constructive, confident alternative, not just decrying the darkness, but truly demonstrating the
0: light. Amen. Well, that certainly, I, I would be- say they will pick you off Oh, if well, you're doing well. Uh, I, Thank you for that. We need to be on guard and be ready. I mean, ultimately, like, I hope that the students that come through here present such a winsome view of reality and of Scripture that 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 will help us be able to be a tonic against that in the future. Absolutely. But it would only take you look at the colleges. Yeah. Only take
1: one trans or three lesbians. And suddenly, you have questions starting to being raised, and then people taking sides, and the whole thing starts all over again.
0: Be vigilant. Thank you. I'm, I hear you, Haas. and um, I, I hope. And I, I just have a sense that God's leading us that. And, and I hope the other institutions um, will stay faithful. this, of course, is a challenge for even my denomination, the Salvation Army. Globally, um, there are, there are pockets that are pushing for the vision of the world that you that, that are caving in to the sexual revolution and the cultural lev- revolution. And it's hard to bring that together because it, you know, people will say, well, and th- this is kind of the way in and it's, you, you like to be liked, uh, but you say, well, faithful Christians disagree on this subject. How do you respond to that? Faithful to who? Wow.
1: To the Lord and to scripture.
0: Yeah. that, that That's where I, that's where I am too. Like ultimately, like, I'm saying if you're violating this this understanding of human creation, the, the body and uh the biblical understanding of human sexuality, it's not you're not being a faithful Christian. That's a hard word to say and uh, uh, like this is connected to to what you've talked about like with even how governments work, like ultimately governments have an like a they're a guardian or a steward of a philosophy of how liberty is ordered, the same thing is true. With the church, like we have a, a federalism, right? A, a a faith together, a covenant together. That this is what makes us up. You want to respond to that?
1: No, I, I agree with you totally. But the, the the challenge that so many Christians who are aware are only critical. Wow. No, they're very clear about the negative. But it's Christians who've explored the scriptures as a whole to the depth. They come away with wonder, love, and praise and then live out the new way. This is a new way, God's project in the world. And we're the vanguard of this. Amen. Rather than always being on the back foot and defensive and so on and so on.
0: Where have you seen that at work? Where are some examples where you see, and I love you brought a good military term, vanguard. vanguard. Where do you see uh, um, that happening? Who, where are some ex- expressions of people being the vanguard?
1: Well, in terms of what I'm talking, Not many in terms of this vision for America, for the church and so on. You know, I was just reading this morning in my own worship, the story of the spies coming into the promised land. I mean, it's a failure on the level of the failure of the golden calf. And they're set back 40 years because of it. And what the spies reported was absolute nonsense, but it was defeatist nonsense. Mm -hmm. And you have so many evangelical leaders today talking like that. We're post-evangelical. We no longer count on this. And Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, confidence, the English word confidence, comes from the Latin word, which means believing or having faith together. Yes. And we need a generation that has confidence in God in the scriptures, in these great, magnificent truths. And we have faith together in these things and we want to share it with people. Amen.
0: Yeah, I love it. that word keeps coming to the, the center of our discussion. Uh, confidence, the fide, mm-hmm. federalism. This, this I, I'm not positive it's the same etymological root, but I think it's probably close. Um, yeah. Oh, Oz, I'm so, I'm encouraged. I've, I've always been encouraged Um, by your work and in just in now like really it's a privilege to have a conversation with you but in in your book i think many of us um probably were impacted by your book the call Mm -hmm. um has that been one of the most more far-reaching books that you've had oh
1: my far my
0: (laughs) bestseller
1: okay so we talked about covenant but if you if you think of the impact of the reformation yes you've the principal impact, you, you could boil down to three words, all beginning with C. We've talked about covenant yeah. and the whole impact on modern politics. You could equally talk about conscience and the way, say, much of human rights grew out. Thomas Howells, Roger Williams, people like that. But the biggest one of all is call. Mm. call. And you think of, say, Max Weber and the idea that calling is even behind the rise of capitalism. Now, that's a controversial argument. But from the call of Abraham, there's the beginning of God's new way. The call of Moses. The call of all the Old Testament, right down to our Lord. Follow me, follow me, follow me. Calling is at the heart of our faith. Mm. And it has in explosive implications for so many areas today i love the notion it's incredibly personal and it's also profoundly public
0: yes the um and, and it's it also is like at it's very essence like is a statement about reality like if there's a call there's a caller uh of course. and so we have to like we're, we're stating like how we view the world operates and it's funny to me how often uh, people on on a try to separate themselves from God use the language of calling <laughs> like okay it's you who's calling you
1: no <laughs> yeah, that's right
0: you could be a good preacher you're a good preacher Oz uh, you got three C's <laughs> it, could, all you need a poem uh, you'll be in good shape <laughs> well I, I appreciate your time I, I always ask people this question uh, the name of is this podcast is more to the story and like what we want to do is like kind of get below the surface of a given idea or more than you can get on a soundbite. But also there, there, there's a theological side to it too. We want to suggest that there's more than just being forgiven. There's the transformed life that God calls us to. But then on the other side, I also want to know, is there more to the story than's typically told of Oz Guinness? What's, is there more to you that people, than people usually know about?
1: If there is, I'm not the one to say it. You have to ask my wife or others, and probably a dark side as well as a bright side. Who knows? I'm not the one to say it, though.
0: Well, who, well let me ask this. Who? What is that? Is that, um, I, I have a guess, is that Winston Churchill behind you, that bust that you have there?
1: Uh, yes, it is. On, on one side is my son, and the other side, Winston Churchill. I met him as a boy. Did you? Tell me about he that. Was, he was my first prime minister growing up. And I went to a school in Kent, and one of my close friends, his father, was the rector of the church close to Chartwell, which was Churchill's home. And I was with them one weekend, and the great man was crossing the village green. Wow. I think I was 13 or 14. And I went up to him. I wish I knew a lot more than I know now and could have an intelligent conversation. But it was a privilege to meet him.
0: Wow. Well, I think that's a good more to the story antidote, so it's pretty good. Well, Oz, thank you so much for your time, for your work on behalf of the church and society, on behalf of the kingdom, We just and and on behalf of the king. Um, It means a lot to me that you're able to spend time here. So thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us. Thanks for
1: having me, Andy. I'm a great admirer of The Salvation Army. Hardly any ongoing organizations have kept alive their mission over the centuries, and the army has, and all power to you, and all credit to you.
0: Well, praise the Lord, and like you said um, about in seminaries, like just pray that the the Salvation Army will be faithful, and be we have to be vigilant because the same cultural forces are coming for the army. And um, I don't mean that I'm not I'm not too pessimistic about that, but um, we'll we'll cover your prayers for Wesley Biblical and for the Salvation Army. Thank you. All right. God bless you.